Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jason Cherry on January 23rd, Lord's Day Service. Well, as we prepare to get started here, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us together here uh, this morning on the Lord's Day that we may uh, give attention to you and to your word. I uh, pray that you would give us joy as we fellowship together and as we study about baptism again this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is our third of four studies on baptism. And our focus today is really on the issue of the mode of baptism. And we've gotten a lot of questions in previous uh, classes that a lot of them were dealing with mode of baptism things. And I, and I said at the time, well, we're going to talk about that. And so today we're going to address a lot of those issues that have already been asked about. And so when I say mode of baptism, really what that's referring to is the fact that uh, some people uh, immerse during baptism and then others uh, in the infant baptism position tend to argue for sprinkling. Uh, and so whether, whether the person is immersed or sprinkled, that's called mode of baptism. So that's really what we're, what we're talking about here. And so as we consider the mode of baptism, you have to realize that the question of the mode of baptism versus who will be baptized are closely related questions. Because if baptism must be by immersion, then obviously infants can't participate. And so, so there's a lot of meaning wrapped up into the mode of baptism question. So the Credo Baptist position argues that baptism must be by immersion. And by this they mean the person must be dipped in the water, their head fully immersed, and then they must be raised up out of the water. And they use four arguments. First, they argue that the word baptizo means dip or immerse. Second, they argue that baptism symbolically commemorates the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Third, they argue by pointing to the baptism of Jesus. They said the baptism of Jesus was an immersion baptism, and therefore it's the example that we must follow. And then fourth, they, they point to this language found in several of the baptism accounts in the New Testament. It says they came up out of the water. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through those four issues. So first, let's consider the issue of does baptizo mean dip? Obviously, baptizo is the Greek word for baptism, the Greek word that, that's translated into the word baptism in our English translations. It refers to the Christian baptism. So does the word baptizo really mean dip or immerse, like the Baptists argue? And before we look at some specific verses, we need to remember two things. First, we need to remember three weeks ago how we established that the Christian doctrine of baptism is built on the foundation of the doctrine of washings in the Old Testament. And those washings were, as we saw, baptisms of a sort. And those baptisms in the Old Testament indicated a ceremonial washing or purification. And in many cases, it was explicitly done by sprinkling. 
And not only that, but in Hebrews chapter 9, when the author of Hebrews is drawing our attention back to the Old Testament baptisms, he emphasizes that that was done through sprinkling. And he, he then, of course, builds that into his New Testament baptism teaching in Hebrews chapter 10. And the second thing to remember here is just how words derive their meaning. And you have to realize that the best way to understand the specific meaning of words is to look at how they are used. And so meanings of words is derived in part from the context and from the circumstantial evidence. In other words, words derive meaning from their usage. And in fact, there's this wonderfully brilliant dictionary that was written in 1838 by Charles Richardson. He wrote an entire two-volume dictionary by using only quotations. He didn't give an actual definition. And there's something right about what Richardson's doing there. And so with those two things refreshed in our mind, let's examine some specific passages in the Bible. And we're going to divide these passages into two categories. First, let's look at those passages where the context of the passage does not give any clues to the meaning of the word baptizo. And then second, let's look at those passages where the context does give some clues to the meaning of the word baptizo. So first, let's consider some passages where the context does not, well, I should say, the immediate context does not give any clues to the meaning of the word baptism. So first, let's just consider maybe the most well-known of these passages, and that's the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, we could probably all quote it. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see the word baptism in that passage. Well, does this passage give us any sort of clues as to what the word baptism means? And in the immediate context of the passage, there, there is no clues as to, as to what baptism actually means, how it's defined. All it does, it tells us to baptize the nations. But there's nothing in the verse that helps us define whether that baptism is by immersion or sprinkling. And I say there's nothing in the immediate context, because once you start to look at the canonical context, and you realize that Jesus is building the Great Commission off of Isaiah chapter 52, verses 14 and 15, and then when you look at Isaiah 52, 14 and 15, you see how the Messiah's blood is going to, quote, sprinkle many nations, and you realize that that's what Jesus is building the whole Great Commission language on, you realize the canonical context does point towards baptism here, meaning sprinkling. But, but we're not looking at that. We're just looking at the immediate context, how the word appears in the sentence itself. And as the word appears in its immediate context, there is no direct clue towards the, what the mode of baptism would be. Another example of a passage where we don't see direct clues in the immediate context as to the meaning of baptism is Mark chapter 1, verse 9. So this is the story of Jesus getting baptized it says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So as you look at that, does this passage, does it, in the immediate context here, does it, does it tell us what the word baptize means? Uh, some people might look at verse 10 and say, ah, but it says, you know, came up out of the water. We'll talk more about that later. Um, when you look at the, how this word is used in verse 9, again, there's, there's, there's no clues as to what the word baptize means means. I mean, once John and Jesus went into the water, I imagine John could have baptized in many different ways, but it doesn't tell us. 
And so there's no clues as to the meaning in those passages. Now let's move to some passages that do give us some clues as to the meaning of the word baptizo. And so let's start in Mark chapter 7, verse 4. Mark chapter 7, verse 4. And as we read this, I think we'll see there are some clues to the meaning of the word baptizo here. So it says, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. That word wash is the Greek word baptizo, the word for Christian baptism. Okay. So when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing. This is baptismos, which is used only four times in the New Testament, and it refers to the Old Testament ceremonial washings, the Old Testament ceremonial baptisms. And are there, so listen to it again. And there, are, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing, baptismos, of cups and pots and cup, copper vessels and dining couches. So here we see the Greek word baptizo and the Greek word baptismo. Baptizo is the first use of wash in most English translations. That, that word's what we use for the Christian baptism. And then you see the word baptismos used four times in the New Testament, and that's, that's the word that the New Testament authors are referring to the Old Testament ceremonial washings in. Okay, so just look at, look at what's going on in this passage. And I want you to read this passage assuming that baptizo and or baptismo means immersion. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they immerse. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the immersing of cups, pots, and copper vessels, and dining couches. Let's think about that. What exactly, again, if baptizo and or baptismo means immerse, what exactly is being immersed? Well, you're immersing yourself. You're immersing these household items that are listed. And you're also immersing the dining couch, which was their, their dining room table. So imagine the terrible time you would have if you had to immerse your dining room table every time you washed it. Imagine what terrible time these Jews would have had trying to immerse their dining room table. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but how do you clean your dining room table at home? I mean, our house, we get a rag and we wipe it down. We, we've never immersed it. I've never known anyone to immerse a dining room table. Um, and then how did they clean their dining room table? Well, by ceremonial sprinkling. And according to John chapter 2, verse 6, the Jews kept jars of water around the house for Jewish rites of purification, just for, this, just for this moment. So what we have here in Mark chapter 7, verse 4, is an example of the word baptizo and or baptismo used in a way where it does not mean immersion. All right, let's look at another example. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll look at verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All right, so of course you see the word baptized there in verse 2. And more broadly, you see that this passage is referring to a specific moment in the history of Israel. What, what moment is this referring to? Well, this is a well-known moment. You all know what this is referring to. This is referring to when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. And it says there in verse 1, it's talking about that moment when they all passed through the sea. 
So this is referring to the Red Sea. This is referring to that moment when God used Moses to part the Red Sea so that Israel could then pass through the sea. And Paul says that in passing through the sea, they were then, verse 2, baptized. Now, when you go back and read the story, there is no evidence that they were immersed in this historical moment. In fact, you'll recall it was the Egyptian soldiers who were immersed in this moment and killed by being immersed when the waters collapsed in on them. And this moment is given further clarity by the words of Psalm 77. Psalm 77, in particular, verses 10 through 20, provides as examples of God's faithfulness to his people, and it focuses on when God used Moses to bring them through the sea. And it says this in Psalm 77, 17. It says, The clouds poured out water, and the skies gave forth thunder. And so it seems like Paul then in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2 here, uses the word baptized to refer to the waters being poured out on Israel. So God parts the Red Sea. They pass through the sea. Paul says in verse 2 that in this they're being baptized. And we see in Psalm 77 that what's happening there is the waters are being poured out on them from the skies. And Paul was describing this water being poured out on them with the word baptizo. And so here we have a second example of the word baptizo, where it does not mean dip or immersion. All right, let's look at a couple of more examples where the context does give us some clues to the meaning of the word baptizo. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Of course, notice here how the word baptism is being used in this figurative sense. The disciples say they are able to drink the cup that Christ drinks. They say they're able to be baptized with the baptism in which Christ is baptized. But this is a figurative expression here. What is figuratively being referred to here? Well, this is a word picture referring to Christ's suffering. And Jesus says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism in which I am baptized. And this is a word picture referring to Christ's suffering. And, 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 and so we see this being used here in this figurative sense. Obviously, no one's being baptized here, and I don't think anybody really is arguing that there's a literal baptism here. It's a figurative expression being used to make a point here. And what we learn from this is that the word baptism can be used in a figurative way to kind of communicate this theological meaning. And and in particular in this passage, they're connecting baptism with suffering. And this cup is also being connected with suffering. So there the word baptism doesn't mean immersion because it's being used in a figurative sense. All right, the last example I'll point to here where there is some clue in the passage about the meaning of the word baptizo is just the language that's used. And I want you to notice how it says that we're baptized with water, not in water. There's two, a couple of examples. John 1.26 says, John answered them, I baptize with 
water. Acts 11.16, you see something similar. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All right, so you notice here, they're using the preposition with. They're baptized with water. And so the preposition with is used to denote the agent or the instrument being used in baptism. And so you see this preposition all over the place. It's very common in, in all communication. So for example, in Matthew 26, 52, listen for the preposition with. They that take the sword shall perish with the sword. You see something similar. Revelation 13, 10 talks about how he that kills with the sword. Okay, so let's think about, think about this. The sword is the agent or the instrument. So if you kill someone with the sword, what are you handling? Well, you handle the sword. You're not handling the person slain, you handle the sword. The sword is the instrument and the person slain is the object that receives the instrument. That's how prepositions work. They kind of change those things around and so, to baptize with water means the water is the instrument in my hand, and the water is applied to the person. And so again, small little clue, but it does matter. Words matter, and if baptism by immersion were being talked about, you would have to pick a different preposition there. You might say baptized in water rather than with water. That changes the meaning of those expressions. All right, so now here we see that the word baptizo does not mean immersion, immersion, not necessarily. We've seen four examples of how the word baptizo does not necessarily mean immersion. And so with that, we're prepared to move on to the next common argument that, that, that Credo Baptists use. And, and so let's now move on to the issue of does baptism symbolically commemorate the burial and resurrection of Christ? And so, Credo Baptists look at baptism as symbolically commemorating the burial and resurrection of Christ. So you're supposed to, you know, you're, and, and there's even a formula, you know, they use your, your, your baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And typically, at least in the Baptist churches I was raised in, that, that formula was used to kind of mimic, you know, you're baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so they're saying there's deep meaning here in baptism because it's commemorating the burial and resurrection of Christ. And so that mode of baptism really matters. And they point to Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. All right, so let's begin with two contextual reminders. The first contextual reminder is remember how in Mark chapter 10 verses 38 through 39 the word baptizo was used as a word picture. It was used as a f to, to express figurative meaning such that to be baptized with Christ is to share in his sufferings. Right, you remember that. Also remember the contextual reminder of what's going on here in Romans. Starting in Romans chapter 6 verse 1 through chapter 7 verse 6, Paul is unfolding for us the glorious doctrine of union with Christ. And, and the primary point of Romans 6, 1 through 7, 6 
isn't to teach us about baptism. It's to teach us about the doctrine of union with Christ. Okay, so with those two contextual reminders, now let's look at the language here in Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. Of course, Baptists look at this, and you can see it's pretty plain how the argument would unfold. They look at this passage, and they say, well, look here. You know, the meaning of the passage is plain and straightforward. Baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Thus, baptism must be by immersion, so as to properly symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. All right, so let's point out a few things. Can someone tell me exactly where was Christ buried? Above the ground. He was buried in a tomb. This is recorded for us in Mark chapter 15, verse 46. So Christ was buried in a tomb. Christ was not buried six feet under. Jesus' body was not put into the earth and then raised up out of the earth. The burial of Christ's body also, just from a theological perspective, the burial itself doesn't have meaning for salvation. The point of the burial, the, the biggest theological point that comes from the burial is to just say, okay, we know he was dead. We know for sure he was dead. You don't bury living people. Now, to the actual words here of Romans 6, verses 3 through 4, notice here, baptism is mentioned twice. And it says that we are baptized into two things. Verse 3, we're baptized into Christ. Verse 4, we're baptized into Christ's death. Okay, so then now what you must do as you're interpreting the passage is find out, okay, well, what does it mean to be baptized into Christ? Verse 3, and then you'd have to ask, what does it mean to be baptized into his death in verse 4? Well, again, remember, this is referring to union with Christ. And so in verse 3, it says we're baptized into Christ. And in Paul's writings especially, he uses this expression, in Christ, frequently. And when he does, almost always he's referring to the doctrine of union with Christ. And whenever you see the phrase in Christ in Paul's writing, it's about union with Christ. And that very important doctrine is it's about what Christ accomplished for us. And, and through faith, what Christ accomplished, you really did accomplish. Like this is the sum and substance of the Christian faith and of your salvation, the doctrine of union with Christ. So through faith in Christ, what he accomplished in his death, you accomplished in his death. Through faith in Christ, what he accomplished in his resurrection, you accomplished in his resurrection. Like you really accomplished it. Like when God looks at you through the lens of Christ's shed blood, you have accomplished these things that Christ accomplished on your behalf. Why? Because you're in Christ. That's the doctrine of union with Christ, and that's what's being talked about here in verse 3. And then you get to verse 4, the, you know, we're baptized into Christ's death. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be baptized into Christ's death? It means the same thing. I, I imagine that noise happened when the tomb was moved and Jesus came out in glory. It means something similar. You're baptized into Christ's death. So Christ's death becomes our death. You know, the, the meaning here is, is Christ's substitutionary death. Christ acts as our substitute. So his death was not just the death of an individual. His death was a representative death. He died as the representative of all those who would believe in him, such that Christ's death is the death to sin for his people. And since we are united to his death by faith, and having already died to sin, there's therefore no basis for them to be punished for their sin. So again, I'm just kind of giving a cursory exposition of these passages, but notice here that this isn't about mode of baptism. 
The point of this passage is very deep and rich, and it's not a mode of baptism passage. Just like Mark chapter 10, verse 38 through 39, isn't a mode of baptism passage. It's, these are where words, the word baptism is being used as a word picture and figurative way to express suffering. Or in Romans 6, 3 through 4, a word picture to express our union with Christ and all that he accomplished in his death. Far is that the word baptizo doesn't mean immerse, not necessarily at least. And we've also seen that baptism doesn't symbolize, at least in the mode, doesn't symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Next, let's consider, was Jesus baptized by immersion? All right, so go to Matthew chapter 3. Was Jesus baptized by immersion? All right, let's start here. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, the first thing to notice here is why is Jesus baptized? According to verse 15 in particular, why is Jesus baptized? Well, it says he is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what is that referring to? Well, righteousness in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 25 is defined as obedience to the law. So, Deuteronomy 6.25, and it will be righteous for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Okay, so Jesus is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness is obedience to the Old Testament law. And when you start looking at Christ's life, it is marked by careful obedience to the commandments of the Lord. For example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, Jesus was circumcised in obedience to Leviticus 12, 3. In Luke chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, Jesus was presented in the temple in accordance with the law of Moses. In Luke chapter 2, verse 42, Jesus went to Jerusalem to the Passover when he was 12 years old in obedience to Exodus 34, 23. We also see, for example, in John 7, 10, Mark 14, 12, and Luke 22, 8, that Jesus observed the Jewish feasts commanded in the law of Moses. And Jesus observed the Old Testament law in his baptism. Remember, Jesus is being baptized to fulfill righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness is to obey the law. We see in the Gospels especially, the Gospel writers are very intent on making it clear that Jesus in his life and in his ministry is obeying, is fully obeying the Old Testament law. And Christ's baptism is the ceremonial act of his ordination into the priesthood. His baptism is to set him apart as a priest. Now, what are the three requirements to become a priest? Well, the first requirement is you must be 30 years old. 
We see this in Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, and verse 47. And that's why, as most people know, Jesus begins his ministry at 30 years old. Well, why do, why do all Christians know that Bible fun fact? Well, it's because in Luke chapter 3, verse 33, Luke tells us that at his baptism he was 30 years old. Why is he telling us that? That's an odd note. Why does that matter? What's the point? Well, the point is, is that when you're inaugurated into the priesthood, you have to be 30 years old. So the first requirement to become a priest is you have to be 30 years old. The second requirement to be a priest is you have to be called of God, as Aaron was called of God in Exodus 28.1. And this is why in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 4 through 10, it tells us that Christ was called to be a priest. So God called him. So the first requirement, you have to be 30 years old. Jesus checks that. Second requirement, you have to be called of God to be a priest. Jesus checks that box. The third requirement to become a priest is you have to be sprinkled with water, according to Numbers chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. Not only that, you have to be sprinkled with water by a priest. And John the Baptist, we know, was a priest. He inherited the office from his father. And so, the third requirement to become a priest is you have to be sprinkled with water. So listen to it. It's Numbers 8, beginning in verse 5. And the Lord said said to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them. And so, at Jesus' baptism, he is being publicly confirmed as a priest. For thousands of years, people were publicly confirmed as a priest by being baptized through sprinkling. Therefore, Jesus is not immersed. He is sprinkled out of obedience to Numbers 8, 5 through 7. And furthermore, Jesus self-consciously saw his baptism as the moment he was anointed as a priest. Take note, for example, in Matthew 21 and Mark 11, the famous incidents where Jesus cleanses the temple. And he's questioned about it, and he makes it clear that he is exercising his authority as a priest. And when the Jews ask him by what authority he cleanses the temple, he cites the baptism of John, which he had received. Jesus argues that since John's baptism was from heaven, he had truly been ordained as a priest and therefore had authority to cleanse the temple. And so Jesus is self-consciously recognizing his baptism as his entry into the priesthood. And so, why was Jesus baptized? Well, he was not being baptized sin. Jesus tells John he's being baptized. Remember Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. He's being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So his baptism is not evidence of repentance of sin. Jesus is baptized to obey the law of the Old Testament for one being set apart to the priesthood, and that was a baptism done by sprinkling. And so, yes, I would encourage us, we should follow Christ's example in baptism. All right, the fourth argument we need to look at, we'll just look at this real quickly here and then we'll wrap up, uh, do some questions if, if we want. The fourth argument is this come out of, came up out of the water language. So Baptists will point to that language you see sometimes in the New Testament, it talks about how Jesus or the person being baptized came up out of the water. 
So does that language came up out of the water, does that mean immersion? Well, of course, there's several passages that describe a baptism event and concludes it by saying something like they came up out of the water. So let me read you two of these examples. The first is the Jesus baptism example. It's Mark chapter 1, verse 10. It says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then another example is Acts 8, 38 and 39. This is when the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized. And it says there, verse 38, they went down into the water. Then verse 39, they came up out of the water. So, you know, the argument is basically Baptists will, will use that and say, well, you know, these verses are describing a person being immersed. Their head came up out of the water. Um, but that's not a... You are describing how Jesus in Mark 1 and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 stepped from the bank down into the water and then when they were done, stepped up out of the water onto the bank. So they stepped down into the water, they were baptized, then they stepped up onto the bank again. And so again, I don't think that expression necessarily is speaking about the mode of Baptism, And as we've already seen with Jesus, he was sprinkled. You know, so when he stepped down into the water and then stepped out of the water, we know that's not referring to you know, the head only. It's just referring to the people walking into the water and then walking up out of the water. All right, so there we have the f those four common arguments about mode of baptism uh, that, that, that um, the Credo Baptist often used. So tried to interact with those and kind of hopefully give some insight into why we believe what we believe, why we sprinkle, why we baptize infants, and why, why we think mode of baptism is best done by sprinkling. At the very least, you now understand why we think what we think on this particular issue, on the mode of baptism issue. So what we're going to do next week is we're going to focus a little bit more on the meaning of baptism in light of some of the things we've seen in these, these previous weeks. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.